Some days are terrible. You wish that you were dead, and some days are magical, like grape banana bread. Someday we'll be friends with the voices in our heads. The voices in our heads. Hello, everyone. Congratulations on not taking your own goddamn life.、Uh, couldn't mean that more. Happy feel your feelings, January. Welcome to the voices in our heads. My name is Christina Marie Hutchinson. It's spelt fucked up. Whatever. You know, I realize a lot of people.、Uh, shit, did I talk about this last week? People have been asking me if I picked the name of the spelling of my name, and I'm like, wait, what? People think like good friends of mine, and I'm like, I. It happened to me the other day. I'm like, you're like the sixth friend this month that has been like, did you pick that spelling for your stage name? I'm like, first of all, why would I pick a spelling for my stage name? Cause you, see, I get whatever. It's weird, but I didn't pick it. Okay, my mom did. So, direct all comments and concerns to my mom. Thank you so much. Oh, you know what? Let's start out. Let's start out at the top. Cause I got we got a lot to cover in this episode. I'm gonna be reading most of chapter one of the Dow fully feeling, and we're gonna feel it. So don't listen to this、uh, episode while operating heavy machinery or riding a horse. I guess you could ride a horse, but、um, just don't fall off of it, okay? Thank you, guys. Let's do some motherfucking fuckboy theater, okay? All right. Fuckboy Theater, ready? I'm gonna read three excerpts of three separate boys of fuckery. Okay. This is man. God, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm alone, and I'm happy with my decision to not even touch the dating apps. Cause let me tell you, this just—it's real bleak out there, guys. If you were wondering. Okay, this guy this is just one simple message from a fuckboy named Matt, who I gotta say, based off the thumbnail, looks hot, and that's a shame. Honestly, this is Plan B. I'm nine inches. If you're ever trying to smoke and get your back blown out, shrug emoji. Every woman is looking for something different, so I'm just covering all my bases. Okay, okay, Matt, nine inches. That's kind of nice. It's pretty big. <laughs> It's the motion of the ocean, not the size of the wave. Which, like, okay, yeah, I guess. But you better have good motion in your fingers. You know what I'm saying? All right, here's a fuck boy named Adam. Oh God, Adam! Someone save Adam's soul. Oh, <laughs> is Adam holding a picture of a giant fish in his profile picture? Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. If we went camping together and had a good time, and then you woke up covered in peanut butter, would you leave or stay? Ass covered in peanut butter. I'd ask, "What the fuck happened last night?" Then we can't go camping. Are you from Tennessee? Yeah. Aren't you gonna ask me why? No. <laughs> And the final, fuck boy, his name is Graydon. Okay, Graydon. This is the first thing he says to this girl. Okay. Do you work at Build a Bear? Cause I wanna stuff you, and then she says, "Yikes!" 
and scene, guys. That's fuckboy theater for this week. So you guys have been emailing me some of the longer conversations, and I'm going to read them. The Voices in Our Heads podcast at gmail.com. Oh, I got this sound bowl. Listen to it. Oops. Isn't that peaceful as fuck? I don't really know what to do with a sound bowl, but while I meditate, I go, Ooh, that's pretty. Ooh, look at how pretty that is. Are you being healed? Are you healed yet? Are you happy yet? Is your depression gone? Did your anxiety just diminish? How about now? No? All right, well, I'm trying. I just got the sound bowl, so I have to, like... It did not come with instructions. <laughs> I've been working out a lot lately uh, at an actual gym that's... Uh, giant dome of a gym so it's very open space and we all got our masks on the whole time and I when I go to sip a glass of water from my bottle (laughs) I put the bottle under the mask like I'm trying to give a blowjob in the back of my car as my mom drives me to school don't want no one seeing my mouth but I noticed a lot of the kettlebells. I love kettlebells. I loved lifting heavy weights, and I was really excited to get back into an actual gym because throughout quarantine, I have weights in my apartment, and I've been working with Talia online to train, but I miss, re- I love heavy lifting, man. Not only will I do the heavy lifting emotionally in a relationship, I will also literally lift heavy weights. So I miss lifting heavy weights. And I noticed some of the kettlebells, like the manly kettlebells, the kettlebells that are for a man, they have like a mad gorilla on them or like a demon face, you know, some man shit. Like they have kettlebells that are the personification of an of Axe body spray. Wait, types of Axe body spray, the flavor, the flavors, the scents of Axe body spray always crack me up because they're like. I build my own goddamn house flavor. Or it's like, I own an axe, fuck you. Or wolf dick. Or demon horn. And then if you look at the girl's deodorant, it's like rainbows and ponies and sprinkles. <laughs> Did you hear that? Are you healed? <laughs> like, what would... Uh, women liked lifting kettlebells too. And I know there's the typical kettlebell that's just, you know... A fucking ball of metal <laughs> or steel or whatever a kettlebell is made up of. You know, kettles shaped like a bow. But I'm like, what are chick kettlebells? Hello Kitty? She's going to come out with Hello Kitty kettlebells for the ladies. They only weigh like one to seven pounds because our arms are so weak. I'm doing this video series with my friend Aya. She's a makeup artist. And uh, I had this idea for a, 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 just a web series about videos called, Will This Make Me Pretty? Because <clears throat> I don't know shit about makeup, even though I buy a lot of it. <clears throat> Uh-oh. Hope that's not the Rones. But she was, we, we did a couple of videos on morning skincare routine and evening skincare routine. Y'all, I did not know a lot of shit. You're supposed to put... Some people are going to hear this and go, Oh my God, Christina, you haven't been doing that? Fuck you, I'm trying, okay? You're supposed to put SPF on your face all the time. I didn't know that. 
I thought that was only when you went to the beach. <laughs> but it's not. You're supposed to put F- SPF on your face so you don't look like an old bitch that no one wants to fuck. Because that's all we care about. Am I right, ladies? God. I'm so weird. But there's all this stuff for your face, Kevin. I can't take it right now. There's all this stuff that you got to put on your fucking face in the morning. And then you got to put different stuff on your face at night. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to keep up here. But it's hard. And then I think of men. I think of men and their fucking three-in-one combo shampoo, conditioner, body wash, ass wipes. I mean, men are just like, give me one bottle and name it after my favorite Star Wars character, and I'll use it for all the stuff. Meanwhile, women are like, will this make me beautiful? Something help. Make me fuckable, please. It's, it's a, it's a, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. There's just so much shit we gotta put on our fucking face. I wish there wasn't. But we're just trying to be pretty to ourselves. I'm just trying to be as pretty as I am on the inside. I'm trying to be as pretty on the outside as I am on the inside. There we go. That's how you say that. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I've This is day five. I'm recording this right before it comes out. Sorry, Mike. The afternoon before it comes out. Early evening, technically. So I'm on day five of no weed and no alcohol. But, you know, that whatever. I don't really care about that one. That doesn't make my loins go, ooh, I want it. But weed, wow. I have been smoking. I, you really notice how much weed you ingest on a daily and nightly basis when you stop doing it. And P.S., if you're doing no weed for Feel Your Feelings January, it's not supposed to be easy, okay? It's supposed to be hard. <laughs> I mean, and if it's not hard for you, God bless. I'm very jealous of you. But it is very difficult. So the first two nights... Where I wasn't smoking, which is the main time I smoke, is at night, and I smoke. I smoke a lot. I smoke like I smoke like a fatty and a half sometimes. That's why I was excited for a reset. I'm like, what do I do with this time? You know, I don't want to masturbate when I'm not high. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. But I, the first two nights, I cried, y'all. I just fucking sat at my new kitchen table because I'm a grown-ass woman and now I eat at a table, so fuck all y'all haters. I just sat at my kitchen table and just cried for a long time. (laughs) And I, you know, whenever tears come up, I'm like, hey, girl, you let them out. I ain't got no problem with crying. I'll cry in public. I'll cry in private. I'll cry behind you walking down the street. I'll cry in a CVS. I'll cry at the grocery store. I don't give a fuck. I will let myself cry. I wish little boys, my dream, my many, one of my many dreams for the planet, is that little boys will be raised to be comfortable crying. Because little girls are raised to be comfortable crying. It's like, well, you can't be an astronaut or a doctor, but you can cry. And we're like, okay, I guess I'll do that. So crying we have no problem with. Uh, I cried I cried a lot and it kind of came out of nowhere and I was listening to the Feel Your Feelings January playlist and wow that shit is that's some those are some somber songs and you know that word sobering like that was a sobering experience man being sober is a sobering ass experience because you just gotta feel your thoughts and then go well I just I'm gonna sit here now and try not to drown them out 
with another substance. It's like, well, I said I wouldn't do weed and alcohol, but I didn't say I wouldn't do mushrooms and ecstasy. I'm not doing any of that. I'm not, I'm not doing any drugs. Hi, Kevin. Did you shit on the floor? Uh, I'll do it. I'll get it later. <laughs> yeah, but I've just been crying. I've been crying at night. And the other thing is, I've talked about this before about my late night eating and how I'm like, you know, I feel like it's just like there's like a hole in my soul and I'm trying to, you know, like fill the void with food because I'm just starving for comfort of a mother that wasn't, you know, couldn't give me what I needed when I was a kid. And nah, I just was high and had the munchies because now that I'm not smoking weed at night, I'm like, yeah, I'm not hungry. (laughs) So that solved that problem. You know, guys, sometimes the source of your problem is not childhood trauma. And that is just I can't I can't remind you of that enough because oh, we're going to do that now, Kevin. Yeah, just squeak it away, huh? Cool. You were silent all goddamn day. Okay, that's fucking rude. So rude. Yeah, no, it's not some deep emotional wound. It's just that I was very stoned at night. And and I thought it was an emotional thing because I, at night, pretty consistently when I smoke, become suddenly starving. Okay? All of a sudden, I'm like, I haven't eaten in 18 years. And then I looked up an article online about it from a scientific journal because I have time because I'm not smoking weed all the time. And they talk about how um, the chemicals in THC basically, in a nutshell, in a Christina Hutchinson nutshell, mimic the feeling of being uh, that you're starving. So I was like, oh, shit. Okay, well, that's not an emotional wound then. Good for me. Something's not an emotional wound. We're learning. We're growing. We realize sometimes it's just because we high and we got the munchies. But when I smoke weed during the day, I don't get the munchies. When I smoke weed at night, I'm like, give me that muffin now, bitch. And the Seamless guy's like, okay, here. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, good. Last time I was watching Pornhub, I wrote this down because I thought it was so fucking funny. Do not have the desire to masturbate, like I said earlier, but I haven't watched porn. I'm like, yeah, I don't really care. Mm, Yeah, Kevin, just keep squeaking it. Sure, it's fine. No, it's fine. I don't care. Stop it, Kevin. I was on Pornhub the other uh, the other night, like, uh, you know, in back in December when I was smoking the wacky grass. And (laughs) Kevin, you're distracting me. Go away. I love you so much. There was a video, one of the first videos on the homepage, because the the whole rollout of like, hey, a lot of people in these videos didn't want to be in these videos. Some Pornhub got rid of a lot of the videos, and I was like, oh, that sucks. You know, technically I should be, it is within my moral compass to be paying for porn, and I just haven't done it. So I feel guilty about that. But um, then they got rid of a lot of the videos, so I was like, well, it's okay to go on now. Truly, I'm using any excuse to look at porn. I just... I just filter in excuses for me to act the way I was going to act anyway. That's pretty much the definition of life, right? I think so. So I was like, well, I don't have to feel guilty about not paying for it because none of these people are being trafficked. I don't fucking know that. That's just what I tell myself to feel better so I could come. Kevin, stop it. Anyway. The first video on the homepage, 
the last time I looked at porn, was called Fucking My Stuck Teen Stepdaughter. And I was went to scroll and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what? Stuck? She's stuck? Why is she stuck? So I click play. I click play on it. And and wouldn't you know it, goddammit, after I weeded through eight rounds of pop-ups and accidentally purchased some boner pills, lo and behold, that teen stepdaughter had her arm stuck in the couch. And as I was watching her pretending to enjoy getting plowed by this stepdad, it dawned on me, I'm like, wait a second. Is that bitch actually stuck in the couch? I don't think she could get her arm out. She kinda, she's kind of struggling, but not in a hot way and not in a I'm going to come way. She's like struggling as if her arm's like actually stuck in the couch. I'm like, isn't that some lazy production? What are we going to call this video? Well, one of our actresses got stuck in the couch, so we're just going to say fucking my stuck teen stepdaughter in the couch. But I was like, I think that bitch is actually stuck in the damn couch. And I was watching it, and I was like, well... Now I'm watching it with a totally different brain because I'm not turned on. I'm just trying to figure out if this bitch is really stuck. And she started sweating. And I was like, I think that bitch is stuck in the couch. And then it looked like all the blood was like rushing to the top part of her arm that wasn't stuck in the couch. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a sign that that bitch is actually stuck in the couch. And she was saying stuff like, hey, can we cut? I'm stuck in the couch. And they're like, shh, women don't talk. Do you guys feel better? Okay. Um, man, I've been crying. I it, it, Look, hey, if you're doing Feel Your Feelings January with me, I mean, you're doing it anyway. You're listening to this and you're doing it. You don't have to give up something. Don't make yourself feel guilty about stuff. That's fucking pointless. That's only going to make everything worse. It's going to make your life worse and everybody who knows you's life worse. Okay? But it does, does feel really good to stop something for a month. And who knows if I'll make it or not. I do believe in myself that I will. But it just requires constant awareness kind of all the time. Because you have no idea how many times a day and night I'm like, hey, I should smoke. No. Hmm. Maybe I should do that high. No. Well, maybe I'll go smoke weed. No. So I have to talk back to the to the part of my brain that's like, fuck you. Let's get rip roaringly stoned. And I have to be like, ugh, no, we're not doing that. So it's a lot of work. Expect it to be a lot of work, and it's not going to be enjoyable, but it does, it does, um, it could, you'll prove to yourself that you can, you know, go without something and see how it feels. I'm not giving up weed for the rest of my life. I'm giving up weed until January 31st, 11.59 p.m., Okay. I've been singing. I, I went live the other night on my Instagram at 2.30 in the morning, New York time. And I was like, I want to sing a song and play. And then I did it. And I was like, it was so scary. But I was like, ooh, I'm getting less scared of it. So follow me on Instagram at Christina Hutch. You know how it's spelled, huh? So let's get into this book, guys. I'm not going to waste any more time because this chapter is, uh, is a good one. And we're going to go through it. This book, uh, god damn, The Tao Fully Feeling, Harvesting Forgiveness Out of Blame. I really like that it talks about healthy blame. Our culture is so adverse to blame. We can blame it on, blame it on your brother. You just blame everything on your dad. Well, you know what? Maybe, 
Maybe my brother done did fuck me up, and I'm going to blame it on him. Because healthy blame, we'll get into it in his words, because his are way better than mine. Healthy blame allows you to have agency over your own goddamn life, and it allows you to say, ah, I'm not taking that anymore, motherfucker. You're not doing that to me, okay? The other thing, I, one of the reasons why I've been crying, and one of the reasons why a couple people emailed me saying they were scared to read this book, I get it. I've read this book three times, and every time I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be fun. I still haven't talked to my parents, and um, god damn, there's so much guilt I have that I talk back to, which is wonderful. And I'm like, not today, guilt. You're not taking me for a ride. I'm riding on my own car, and it's a 97 Dodge Viper, blue with white racing stripes, so fuck you. It's weird. Ugh. It, it still makes me sad. It makes me sad. I've been thinking a lot about when I was crying the, the other two nights, I was like, man, my parents don't know me. And it just really feels like they don't want to because they tell me how I feel or they'll tell me how I'm acting or they just focus on how how my behavior affects them. And it's rarely positive. I mean, the last couple of times I've talked to them, it was nothing, nothing good. And I'm like, man, you wouldn't talk to a goddamn stranger that way. But you claim to love me so much that you're mean to me? I, I don't I, I don't understand. So whenever I feel guilty about like, should I talk to them? Should I call them? Should I just write them a letter? Uh, I'm like, no, I need this time apart to think. And I really hope that they think too. But I do miss and love them. And so it's 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 weird, man. It's weird. I feel like a I'm an emotional orphan. Um Yeah. That sucks. But if you have parents who like are curious about you and don't want to actually get to know you and support you and don't judge you, what a blessing. You're very blessed. You're hashtag blessed, hashtag 2020, hashtag not my watch. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Okay, so let's read some excerpts of this chapter one. The chapter is called The Importance of Recovering the Whole Emotional Nature. Ooh, let's get into that. Sounds spooky. Are you healed yet? Wait, I'm making a note. Are you healed yet? I think that's what I want to call the episode. Because I'm recording this, y'all, you know, the night before it comes out. So I got to <laughs> I gotta write down notes as I go. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. So let's start with this section. Um, we have become so resistant to feeling pain that we are continuously inventing new ways not to feel. Like smoking the wacky grass. Yeah, like smoking the wacky grass. And like getting lost in your VR headset for hours because you don't want to face stuff. Yeah, that too. And like watching, yeah, all that. Okay. The widespread narcotization of housewives with Valium in the 50s and 60s set a precedent for the current mushrooming an anesthetization, shit, I knew I wasn't going to say that word right, of both sexes with modern antidepressants. Drugs like Prozac, Zoloff and Paxil are currently being used as designer drugs and many general practitioners with little psychiatric training liberally prescribe them to anyone who complains of feeling bad. Now, that's not to say, I just want to take it on to say this, if you're on any of those drugs or if you're on antidepressants and it helps you, that's wonderful. With everything I know about drugs, and I'm a, I'm a fucking comedian, okay? So don't say, don't take my word and judge your own life against it you know what I mean just take what I say and be curious about yourself with it don't judge yourself but it really feels like um all of these drugs can be a band-aid but sometimes you need a fucking band-aid because you want a goddamn break from your own thoughts because we're all in a hamster wheel of hell y'all get on board so if you're on these drugs and they help you that's wonderful but I think that doing the work to not need those drugs is 
absolutely 100% possible. And if you don't want to do that right now, because, you know, you're busy, I get it. Okay? Examples of this were reported in a 1995 Frontline TV special. This program documented the current widespread trend to overuse Prozac, focused on a Washington state psychologist who prescribed Prozac for 100% of his clients and wouldn't treat new clients unless they took Prozac. On camera, he told one prospective client, quote, your true self is not available to you without this medication. Uh, fuck you, doc. Uh, fuck you. Unfortunately, I meet more and more therapists who immediately recommend Prozac to their clients without first exploring grieving as an antidote to depression and stress. And that's what this goddamn book is about, guys. Grieving. Some of these fucking therapists don't even want to work, so they go, here's the pill. Now I'm going to do nothing. You can come to my office and be numbed out. We won't really talk about stuff, and I'll twiddle-diddle my thumbs while I jerk off under a blanket. Or whatever you do. (laughs) In the war that our culture wages against feelings, emotions are becoming an endangered species. We are ubiquitously besieged by familial and societal expectations to be cool. The pose of acting as if nothing can hurt or affect us has insidiously become our model of health and evolution. Many of us have become so cool that we are emotionally cold and chillingly aloof. Nowhere, not in our most private moments, nor in the company of our closest friends, do we feel safe to explore our feelings. Well, I mean, I'm getting there, Doc. God damn, give me some faith. Anger, depression, envy, sadness, fear, distrust, etc. are all as integral to life as bread and flowers and streets. Yet these feelings commonly evoke shame and dread in us the moment they arise. Well, yeah. Even in those of us who are stalwart in the face of every other life contingency. Those who dare to express feelings that are anything but positive are increasingly seen as pitiful and unevolved for not choosing more exalted states. What a terrible abandonment of the natural human inclination still extent on non-industrialized pockets of the world, to offer compassion to an anguished friend, a shoulder to cry on, and permission to have a good bitch and moan are disappearing sacraments in industrialized societies. Well, I could tell you, not my goddamn industrialized society, because sometimes I call my girlfriends, I'm like, hey, can I just bitch for 20 minutes? And they're like, sure. I'm like, okay, I'll bitch for 20 minutes, and then you bitch for 20 minutes, or however long we need, and then we'll just make fun of everybody and call everybody stupid and feel better. And a lot of times that's what we do. Not not necessarily the call everybody stupid part, but, you know, roasting people and healing our uh, desire to leave this planet through humor. You know? Oh, what the fuck? Kevin, fuck you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Well, Kevin tore through my headphones and I can only hear through half. Hey, you know what? There's all kinds of obstacles that my life is going to have. And that's just one of them. And it's all on how you deal with it, right? So I'm just going to hear from one ear for the rest of the episode. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to take these headphones off. What was I saying? Man, I'm sorry. I've been being distracted by Kevin a lot this episode, and that's okay because um, that's what my life has become. Yeah. Call on your friends and bitch. It's it's such a powerful thing, and it can make you feel so much better. I highly recommend it. And any friend who's like, ew, no, you don't, don't be their friend, you know? I mean, you can have a conversation about it and see if you can get through it, but that's not, I don't want anybody in my life, this book talks about this a lot, who's just a fair weather friend. Who's just only there when shit's happy and good. Okay, so now I'm going to read a section from chapter one called Halting the Flight from Feelings. The disease of emotional emaciation is epidemic and hundreds of millions of industrialized people are emotionally impoverished and deadened. Yeah, no shit. I know a bunch of those people. A lot of them are in the entertainment industry. Our vast array of seemingly sophisticated distractions like weed, 
and VR headset and piano leave us more emotionally hurt and lost than human beings have ever been before. He's probably talking about social media. As we become increasingly driven and compulsive, real experiences of peace elude us. Constant busyness stresses and wears us out on the treadmill of never accomplishing enough. We unconsciously dread stopping or having unstructured time, lest the feelings we are fleeing catch up with us and pounce into awareness. I'm glad he talks about that because I really thought that was just me. I'm like, if I'm not doing anything, I'm just, I should just die and I'm not worth nothing, huh? No one's ever going to want to date me or marry me or be my friend if I'm not always getting stuff done and getting A pluses in first place. I really thought that was a me issue. Guys, if you think something's a you issue, a lot of times it's a other people issue too. I mean, it's also a you issue, but you're not, you're not alone, okay? Some of the most beautiful things in life, sex, food, exercise, conversation, learning, and work lose their quality because our frenzied pace makes it impossible to savor them. I'm glad he put sex first because I haven't had sex in a long time and it's really getting to me. And I'm like, it is a physiological need. And then Daddy Walker was like, yes, it is, Christina. And I was like, thank you. Rarely do we slow down long enough to digest the full pleasure of these activities. How sad it is that we sacrifice our peace because we are not still enough to feel, experience, and work through the undigested emotions that drive us, that rumble in our bellies as anxiety, that toxify our thoughts as constant worry, that make us run as if we were stuck in a constant jailbreak from ourselves. Ooh, who's horny, huh? Seriously, congrats on not killing yourself. We can stop the mindless running. Experiences of peace and contentment underlie our undigested feelings. We can learn to safely feel and express all our emotions and discover the deep comfort of full, undistracted inhabitancy of our bodies. We can be transformed from human doings, a term coined by John Bradshaw, back into human beings. Anthropologists Eli and Beth Halpern remind us that peacefulness is a natural condition for human beings. They report, in Micronesian, there's a word, kukuro, which has no corresponding word in English. When people say they are going to Kukuro, they mean they are going to relax, sit around, hang out. They are being, not doing. That's why I always tell y'all to meditate. Get out your meditation cushion or just sit on the floor or the ground, wherever you want to sit. But it's really important to have those moments of inner peace throughout your day or at least once a night. You know what I'm saying? Many of us cannot remember the last time we weren't being or obsessing about being productive. Well, that feels fucking personal now, doesn't it? as I stare at my to-do list with 27,000 things on it. Many of us have forgotten how we used to be bedazzled by such everyday wonders as marveling at a spider web, finding an animal shape in the clouds, exploring the delicate intricacy of the pistils and stamens of a flower. (sighs) Y'all, buy yourself fresh flowers, okay? And just stare at them. Just when you wake up every day, stare at the flowers and go, isn't that pretty? And then go about your day. It is time to rediscover the emotional vitality of the child within us. Our inner child can find enduring satisfaction in simple pleasures because she or he or they or them does not pursue them purely to escape inner emotional turmoil. Uh, I guess that's how we're supposed to be living, huh? Oops. Got the memo late, but hey, never late the never. (laughs) Okay. Perhaps the vision of the emotionally vital poet Walt Whitman will motivate you to reconnect with the ardor of your abandoned inner child. And this is the poem. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels, 
and I or you, pocketless of a dime, may purchase the pick of the earth, and to glance with an eye or show a bean in its pod confounds the learning of all times. Okay, I gotta be honest, I don't know exactly what that poem means, but it sounds pretty, doesn't it? Many of us balk at the idea of welcoming our feelings because we rarely witness healthy emotional expression. The small percentage of people in our culture who do express feelings are often emotional in obnoxious ways, and many individuals, quote, under the influence, are pathetic or hurtful in their unbridled emotionalism. And you know what? I'm so glad he said that. I'm so glad he said all these words, but especially that part, because I'm like, yeah, some motherfuckers are just emotionally obnoxious and they make your their feelings your problem, whether it's a friend, a family member or a stranger. And it's like, can you not do that? Thank you. There is also a small but highly visible segment of our population which suffers from borderline personality disorder. <sighs> Borderlines typically express their emotions punitively and explosively. They rage and sob convulsively at the drop of a hat, often in a manner that makes us feel controlled and manipulated. Yep, check that checks out. Their extreme emotional behaviors further convince us that we are wise to hide our feelings. Ooh, that gave me the willies. Because I really do think that um that my mom, man... Some of the behaviors she has are are consistent with borderline. And it felt like I was always a prisoner to her feelings. And when he when I read that part, their extreme emotional behaviors further convince us that we are wise to hide our feelings. I'm like, you know what? That was me when I was a little girl. So that gave me some solace. There is a third type of individual who gives feelings a bad name by stubbornly holding on to them until they become embittered attitudes. Those who are perpetually entrenched in irritability or self-pity often alienate us from feeling or expressing any anger or sadness whatsoever. We do not have to let other people's irresponsible emotional expression alienate us from our feelings. You hear that, Christina? Yes, I hear that. Okay, well, good. Okay, yeah. While I believe we do not have much choice about what we feel, I know that we have many choices about how we respond to our emotions. The Tao of fully feeling describes the middle ground between emotional explosiveness and emotional deadness, between miasmic moodiness and desiccated feelinglessness. It provides pragmatic advice for dealing with painful and potentially disrupted feelings in non-destructive ways. And I would just like to pause real quick to say, if you are listening to this and you have borderline personality disorder, you are not a piece of shit, okay? Because guess what? We're all pieces of shit on this piece of shit planet that we make even shittier by our hairsprays, okay? And our airplane rides. But if you have any of these uh, characteristics of that he's describing of people who kind of are volatile with their emotions. It's okay. Listen to this goddamn book because it's going to give you ways to help. This book really is for fucking everyone. I, I, oh, if you have feelings, you should read this book. We can learn to be emotional in benign ways. We can have our emotions without holding on to them. We can soften and relax into our feelings without exiling or enshrining them. We can let our feelings pass through us when they have fully served their function. There are also times when it behooves us to sublimate or suppress our feelings. Sublimation is the conscious choice to transform and redirect emotional energy into other modes of productive self-expression, such as exercise or dance. Ooh, I haven't danced in a while. Hey, just because it's quarantine doesn't mean you can't dance in your own home with the windows closed or open, whatever suits you. 
Oh, I'm going to dance after this. Suppression is the conscious choice to refrain from emotional expression in inappropriate circumstances. Rarely do we benefit from yelling at the boss or crying in front of insensitive people. Well, I've done both of those things. At such times, we can postpone emoting until we are in a safer milieu. And I did pronounce that word right. You're welcome. Automatic repression is not the only bad choice we make regarding our feelings. A damaging choice that most of us continuously make is clasping a positive feeling that we are no longer truly experiencing. Well, that feels goddamn personal and something that I've been doing a long time and probably something that's the source of a lot of my pain. When we do this, we replace the authenticity of that feeling with an empty, lifeless idea. You ever know those people? Usually, I mean, in my experience, it's usually a woman. But they're like, hey, this is, you know, this is Don, this is Barbara. This is Barbara. And then you meet Barbara and she's like, hi, <laughs> I'm fine. And they're like, are you, are you okay, Barbara? Yeah, no, everything's freaking great. Isn't it great? It's so sunny out. Barbara, do you need help? No, I'm fine. Everything's awesome. Barbara, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. Oh, I, I don't think you're being honest with yourself, Christina. Oh, I'm being honest with myself. And then Barbara's head explodes in front of you and you're like, okay, nice knowing you, Barb. When we force ourselves to display unfelt happiness or love, we appear as artificial and beguiling as plastic flowers or cheap perfume or Barbara. Forced laughter and strained smiles inspire the same level of trust as do dishonest politicians and slick used car salesmen. And I was like, well, that's offensive because that's something I do and I don't think I'm like that. But when I think about it more, yeah, you're right. It's hard. Growing and learning is hard, guys. Without the full spectrum of emotions, we are not whole human beings. We are instead like the artist whose palette only has room for light and cheery colors. Which, you know, me 10 years ago would have been like, well, that's the palette I want. Our self-expression is boring and superficial like discount store paintings, unconvincingly ethereal in their insipid feathery pastels. It's a lot of fancy words and I'm doing a really good job. Thank you. The negative emotions add dark colors to an artist's palette. They open up an infinite range of color, hue, and tone. Without black on the palette, there are no rich colors, no depths, no contrast, no intricacies. Without the dark colors of it, it's impossible to capture the infinitely diverse themes and landscapes of life. Without our darker emotions, there is little depth and dimensionality in our connection with others. We cannot access the many avenues and subtleties of communication that make friendship rich and enduringly interesting. If we only be friends when we are happy and up, then our friendships are painfully superficial. Profound loneliness is the terrible price we pay when we only relate to others from a guise or stance of feeling good. Well, you just solved all my problems, Doc. Those who are only there for us during the good times are fair-weather friends and are strangers to loyalty and trust. Okay, now let's talk about this section because it hurts me a lot. Harvesting forgiveness out of blame. Oh, let's talk about blame, motherfuckers. Let's blame people. But honestly, yeah, let's blame people. In a healthy way. We're not taught about healthy blame. And we, and we need to be taught about it. So that's why I'm here. Enter Christina. I hear a great deal of dangerous and inaccurate guidance put out about forgiveness these days. Particularly about forgiving parents who were abusive or neglectful. 
You must simply choose forgiveness is a common refrain in many recovery and new age arenas. This black and white advice about forgiveness seems so irrefutable that many survivors unquestioningly accept it. Because sometimes you're just like, tell me what to do and I'll do it and then I'll be a good girl. I'll be good if you tell me what to do and I do it and then I'll get it off my to-do list and then I'll feel better about myself because I'm doing stuff. Hey, just because someone tells you to do something doesn't mean it's the best choice. Wish I knew that earlier. Many decide to forgive but secretly feel awful about themselves because they never actually feel forgiving. Others think and truly believe they forgive, yet never feel any emotional substance in their forgiving. Blind acceptance of the advice to simply choose forgiveness creates a condition of false forgiveness. False forgiveness is psychic thin ice that obscures our underlying reservoirs of angry and hurt feelings about childhood. Unfortunately, this fragile mental construction cannot support an emotionally deep and truly intimate relationship with our parents. <sighs> Real forgiveness has all but vanished from Western culture. It has been replaced by an unauthentic idea of forgiveness that renders us amnesiac about our pain. For those of us who were seriously hurt in childhood, forgiving feelings towards our parents rarely arise until we have drained our reservoirs of pain by grieving. Woo! I'm just going to pause real quick to give you a goddamn break from that. Since real forgiveness, as we will see, begins with the self, I hope this book will help you understand how unfair it is to blame yourself for not simply choosing forgiveness. Mm, mm, mm. All right. Grief proceeds relief. This one has me trembling in my boots, so get ready. Pull the car over. Ugh. Get your tissues out. And get ready to cry. Simply choosing forgiveness is often an unconscious attempt to keep our sadness and anger about childhood buried in the past. Ironically, this decision also inters our feelings of real forgiveness as well as our capacity to be fully feeling. If we are to unearth our whole emotional nature, we must first dig through the layers of old emotional pain that cover it. This excavation typically unearths the corpses of many childhood losses deaths of essential aspects of ourselves we were not allowed to grieve at the time when we grieve them now we discover our phoenix-like ability to be fully reborn out of those losses i just love that because don't you think of like a fucking um pokemon phoenix or whatever i don't know why i think of a pokemon one or a harry potter one i don't know if there were phoenixes in those because i didn't really follow those shows or movies but i feel like there were just like a phoenix coming up out of all of our shit it's kind of cool. Grieving is unfortunately widely prohibited in our culture. Psychotherapists Jordan and Margaret Paul elaborate on our reluctance to grieve and, quote, to dirty our hands with our painful feelings. Our difficulty in dealing constructively with pain begins in childhood. Parents' efforts to protect children against any harsh reality, conflict in the family, death of a pet, deprives them of practice in handling pain. When parents don't allow for open expression of pain, whether it's minor, such as a disappointment or a failure, or major, such as the loss of a grandparent, children never learn they can experience pain, be deeply affected, and still survive. This is how we learn we have to be or seem to be uneffective. Oh, God. That's the thing. That's the thing about it, too. Because it's like, oh, if I go down this rabbit hole of sadness that I feel that I'm pushing down deep down into the hole of the well of Christina's emotional life that she wants no goddamn part of or doesn't want to see. I feel like if I let myself feel that, or I, I, I used to feel this way, 
I used to have this fear that if I let myself feel really sad about what really happened to me, I would never come out of it. But I'm here to tell you today, y'all, that that ain't fucking true. Woohoo! Oh, man, my favorite quote is coming up. This is going to punch you in the goddamn taint. Grieving is, in fact, so taboo in our culture that most of us cannot even cry at the funerals of those whom we love most. Those who dare to actively lament are encouraged to get over it quickly, to stop thinking about their loved ones, to put away photographs of the departed, and above all, to keep busy. In Loss and Change, Peter Maris... Uh, Peter Maris's study of the Anglo-Saxon Saxon approach to grieving, he elaborates on this. He says, grieving, uh, <laughs> giving way to grief is stigmatized as morbid, unhealthy, demoralizing. The proper action of a friend or well-wisher is felt to be distraction of a mourner from his or her grief. Mourning is treated as if it were a weakness, a self-indulgence, a reprehensible bad habit instead of a psychological necessity. If we are not allowed to mourn death, how much more reluctant are we to grieve other significant losses? Until I was 30, it never would have occurred to me to grieve the death of a job or a relationship. Until recently, almost no one grieved for one of the greatest losses of all, the death of a parent's goodwill in childhood. I'm gonna give myself a minute on that, y'all, because this is real hard for me. <laughs> no, I'm laughing and crying at the same time, so don't worry. I'll be honest about it. I'm not gonna pretend I'm not crying. I'll let you know. <laughs> but sometimes you laugh and cry at the same time, and it's just very funny to me. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, girl, you gotta pick one. No, you don't. Little wonder so many of us carry around tremendous burdens of unreleased grief. How needlessly we suffer from being deprived of the unique healing relief that comes only through grieving. Grieving, like nothing else, extricates us from our webs of tension and distraction. We can let go of unhealthy allegiances to old family rules that do not allow us to acknowledge the pain of our childhoods. We no longer need to squander our vitality, imprisoning our memories and guarding against the escape of our pain. Many of us are like animals, corralled so long that we have not noticed that adulthood has opened the gate to a vast plane of freedom and opportunity. Grieving releases us from the confinement in a tiny portion of ourselves and frees us to grow into the confident, life-loving adults we should have been groomed to be. Ooh, look, he used groom in a good way. I didn't know that was possible. I hope this book unlocks your inborn ability to proudly embrace your grieving process and that you are subsequently rewarded with the gifts of grieving described in chapter four. We'll get to that. Real forgiveness is most commonly found in the calm eye of the hurricane of blame. This paradox is part of a larger irony that instricably links the human capacity to feel good with the necessity to sometimes feel bad. God, take the good with the bad. That ain't just a saying, y'all. That's truth. He who never feels sad cannot know joy. She who is never angry rarely feels authentic love. Those who perpetually run from their fear never discover their courage. And those who refuse to feel blame never really feel forgiveness. You hear that? So you gotta blame in order to forgive. He said so, so it's good. It's just the reason why I'm so um, astounded by 
the way he talks about blame is because I, I was never allowed to blame my parents for anything. It was always me. It was always my fault. Now, that was not said to me outright, but it was shown to me by their actions. And so it's kind of this beautiful freeing moment of realizing, oh, I can blame people who hurt me. And that's not to say if you have similar anxieties about confronting your parents like I do, you don't have to go call your mom up and be like, and then when I was seven, you said I looked fat. And then when I was 10, you said that you didn't like the dress. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to, you don't have to talk, but you have to really do that excavation of, of understanding why you are hurt. And luckily it doesn't have to involve you slinging insults at your mom and dad, which is quite a relief. Those who refuse to feel uh, feel blame never really feel forgiveness. Ken Wilber, a modern sage of transpersonal psychology, states, In trying to separate the opposites and cling to those we judge positive, such as pleasure without pain, life without death, we are really striving after phantoms without the least reality. Might as well strive for a world of crests and no troughs, buyers and no sellers, lefts and no rights, ins and no outs. Ooh, poetic. As the opposite to forgiveness, blame is widely pathologized in spiritual and therapeutic circles. Most experts on forgiveness seem to be oblivious to the differences between healthy and dysfunctional blame. When we offhandedly banish blame from our awareness, we never discover its tremendous value as an instinct. Blame is a fundamental part of saying no. I repeat, blame is a fundamental part of saying no. Setting limits, protesting unfairness, and defending our boundaries. Boom! There it is, Christina. Your biggest fear. Boundaries. Well, your previously biggest fear, because it's not anymore. Well, I'm trying. We will never feel safe if we cannot make blaming statements like, stop it, you're hurting me, or don't call me names, or no, you cannot take that, it belongs to me. You hear that? My soul is mine. Such reflexive blame is a vital contribution from the feeling nature to the instinct of self-protection. Dysfunctional parents customarily crush their children's instinct to blame unfair parenting practices. As soon as it appears, in our culture, the most extreme consequences are meted out to children who challenge their parents. Most hospital emergency rooms deal daily with the violence parents perpetrate on children who say no or answer back. Well, that's fucking sad. Shit, I wish I had my fart machine to insert farts into this, but it's like, you know what? Let's just feel it. Stop trying to insert a fart every goddamn time, Christina. Okay. Even parents who claim to be philosophically opposed to corporal punishment sometimes reflexively respond to their toddler's no by grabbing their arm, yanking them into the air, and swatting them with full force on the buttocks. Well, that sounds like corporal goddamn punishment to me. Can you imagine how you would feel if someone three times your size suddenly appeared beside you and manhandled you in such a manner? Well, that's it's probably an inappropriate time to ask me that question because I haven't had sex in a really long time. So if someone three times my size was like manhandling me, I'd be like, well, can you do it a little softer and hit me on the booty? So I digress. Many of us are so afraid of our blame because we were traumatically abandoned as children. Oh, here we go. For challenging parental unfairness. Woo! Many of us suffered the archetypal punishment 
of being pushed out a door, sometimes with a packed suitcase by a parent fuming, something like, get out of my sight. If you don't like the way we are doing things around here, then go find somewhere else to live. Oh, that's so sad. When children are not allowed to blame their parents' bad behavior, they typically turn their blame against others or themselves. When we cannot put our blame where it belongs... We are often unconsciously impelled to blame and hurt someone else. Dr. George R. Bach and Dr. Herb Goldberg describe the consequences of this. Quote, many of the common forms of displaced aggression, such as scapegoating, bullying, prejudice, and cruelty, are byproducts of aggressive feelings first felt within the family, but, not, but, uh, but suppressed. To inflict pain at least proves that I can affect somebody. If I cannot affect or touch anybody, I can at least shock you into some passion through wounds and pain. I shall at least make sure we both feel something. Well, I mean, if that ain't what's wrong with the goddamn world. I love this book so much because one of the other things it does for me is you see these videos. I, I was telling you a while back, I had, a, I had to stop following those Karen accounts because I was like, I cannot face the disgusting behavior of humanity like that it's just so disgusting and appalling and i and you know your girl needs an explanation for everything i want to understand things and i'm very okay with that and i honor that as much as i can but that quote that motherfucking quote right there whew, that explains a lot of people's shit behavior it's upsetting to see human beings treat other human beings hatefully it's so fucking upsetting because all they're doing is throwing all their pain from wherever it came from, probably childhood, Houston, probably when you were a kid, at somebody else. And so what you're doing is you're just watching this cycle of pain, this hamster wheel, and it keeps going and going. And with every goddamn video, I mean, look, the videos are important, but it hurts my fucking soul sometimes to see that I just, ah. Oh. They need to be seen, especially when it's being done by the goddamn police. Jesus, never not film the police. But like, ugh. Like one of those bitches at a Walmart going in and she films herself and she's like, guys, I'm going into this Walmart and I'm not going to wear a mask. And if they tell me I have to wear a mask, I'm going to be like, I'm bringing my freedom. And then she goes into the Walmart and the, the manager's like, ma'am, can you please wear a mask? Ah, I motherfucker. And it's like, bitch, you wanted that fight, you dumb bitch. Okay, shut the fuck up and go work on yourself. But see, that's not going to help solve it either. I got a lot of anger in me. Okay, we digress. Misplaced blame is scapegoating. Willem Reek brilliantly describes the consequence of misdirected blame in the mass psychology of fascism. Ooh, that took a turn. There are many fascist, fascistic, fascistic? You know the deal. Subcultures in our society. Almost every minority group, including children, suffer from atrocious acts of scapegoating and prejudiceness. Yeah, that's right. No, it's crazy. Reich points out that subcultures are fasc fascistic. I really should look these words up. Sorry. To the degree they demand absolute unquestioned honoring of their leaders. Similarly, families are fascistic. To the degree that parents are autocratic. Parents who can't protest their leaders' misconduct commonly scapegoat their children. And children who can't blame their parents displace their anger onto the socially approved targets of their subculture. 
Whether or not we unconsciously act out our blame through scapegoating, most of us unfairly blame ourselves for the deficits we suffer from poor parenting. <sighs> yeah. We scapegoat ourselves rather than consider that our parents might have seriously injured us, especially since complaining about bad parenting is one of our culture's ultimate taboos. Well, not if you're Christina Marie Hutchinson. I'll fucking call bitches out all goddamn day. Not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to understand myself more and other people. Renowned psychologist Eric Erickson points out that blame becomes shame when it is turned against the self. And many of us suffer unending bouts of toxic shame because our inverted blame continuously generates self-loathing. I mean, every goddamn sentence of this book should be another book. Until we understand the degree to which our current pain derives from unresolved childhood losses, we are susceptible to blaming the wrong person or persons for our troubles. Chapter 7 is an approach to blame that does away with the need for scapegoating and witch hunting and allows us to feel and express our blame in ways that do not hurt us, our parents, or innocent bystanders. Well, that sounds like a world I want to live in. If you would like to assess whether or not you have been poisoned by your own blame... Close your eyes and notice your inner experience as you try to remember challenging your parents. I don't want to do that. Perhaps you don't have any recollections of resisting them. Maybe your complete humbling took place before you could even remember. Nonetheless, you may still tense up inside. Yeah. Feel guilty. Oh, a lot of that. Or even scold yourself at the thought or image of questioning your parents about anything at all. Ding, ding, ding! We have a winner! <laughs> Christina's the winner. <laughs> thank you. I would like to thank my mother and father. They didn't know any better. When you know better, you do better. You know what I'm saying? That's why I'm trying to get people to know better by reading this goddamn book. Or perhaps you remember traumas that occurred when you disagreed with them. If you feel any loss or distress doing this exercise, that's pretty much all of us, I hope it will motivate you to more thoroughly explore your relationship to blame. And this section is called Blame But Do Not Forget. Oh, Forgive But Do Not Forget. Well, that was a Freudian slip. Forgive But Do Not Forget. This section is called Forgive But Do Not Forget. Forgiveness does not in any way justify or condone harmful actions. While you forgive, you may also say, never again will I knowingly allow this to happen. Jack Cornfield. That was the quote. Real forgiveness depends on the adult child clearly remembering the specifics of her parents' abuse and neglect. That doesn't sound fun, but it's necessary. It is not humanly possible to forgive injuries that are still causing us pain. Huh. Unremembered and ungrieved trauma block the tender feelings that are the matrix for feeling forgiveness. I first began to understand this when I finally realized I would never have the notorious one day you'll thank us for this experience. While there is much that I do thank my parents for, my gratitude never relates to the times they used the phrase to justify their hurtfulness. To truly feel grateful to our parents, we must first identify and achieve significant healing of our childhood injuries. Accordingly, I hope you will distinguish between those parenting practices that merit gratitude and those that need to be repudiated. When we authentically forgive our parents, we know what we are forgiving them for and what specifically was blameworthy about their behavior in the first place. If we do not recognize the exact nature of our parents' transgressions, we risk tolerating similar kinds of hurtfulness in the present. 
Children who are not allowed to blame their parents' bad behavior often become adults who do not protect themselves from abuse. Uh, there, are okay. there are many perpetrators who seem to have a sixth sense for identifying people who have lost the ability to protest and blame unfairness. If we do not register a negative feeling response to hurtfulness, we cannot tell that we are being abused. Instead, we tactfully forgive our abusers, just as we were forced to tactfully forgive our parents, no matter how much ongoing abuse they dish out. This is why psychoanalyst Judas Voyer says, until we mourn the past, we are doomed to repeat it. When we effectively grieve our childhood losses, old unexpressed feelings of blame naturally resurface. There is usually little or no need to express these feelings directly to our parents. Thank fucking God! Unless, of course, they are still actively abusive. Oh, God damn it. All right, well, that sucks, but okay. Feelings of blame can be expressed in safe and non-abusive ways without our parents being present. Back for a win. In my own experience, personal recovery work, and in my private practice, I have seen this expression miraculously generate openings into real feelings of forgiveness on many occasions when this wonderful transformation occurs. Quote, pain without memory is replaced by memory without pain. Anne Hart. Oh, that's a good quote, Anne. Good for you, girl. Getting those quotes in. Finally, some parents were so cruel that forgiveness may not be an option. That's a very important thing to consider, guys. Nonetheless, it is still important to uncover and express blame about their perversity because unexpressed blame commonly blocks all our feelings of forgiveness, self-forgiveness, as well as the forgiveness of significant others. <sighs> Only a couple more sections of this chapter, and then we're going to go home and cry, right? Oh, just one more section, and then let's cry, motherfuckers. Let's cry. The rewards of emotional recovery. Yeah, let's talk about the rewards and the good stuff. Is there mac and cheese in a buffet? And maybe a chocolate melting pot I could dip marshmallows in? Sparrow, your message is clear. It is not too late for the singing. Tess Gallagher. Many of us become anxious when we first contemplate the idea of emotional recovery. Learning to feel is sometimes as disconcerting as mastering an artificial limb. Yet even though mastery of a prosthesis causes considerable discomfort at first, few would forego a difficult adjustment period to reacquire the mobility afforded by such a device. Adapting to feelings may seem similarly aggravating at first. I mean, that's the understatement of the goddamn year. And it's only January. Yet I believe the benefits of restored feeling are even greater than a prosthesis restoration of the ability to walk, dance, and drive. Guys, I might not be pronouncing these words right, but I'm trying and you get what I'm saying, okay? As we become more emotionally whole, our health and vitality naturally improve. When we disburden ourselves of old, unresolved traumas, energy wasted holding the past at bay becomes available for celebrating daily life. Restored feelings enliven our sensation, cleanse, cleanses our filters of our perception, and refurbishes our aesthetic appreciation. This naturally invites us to slacken our pace and relax into the innate ability to be daunted by beauty. I mean, Jesus Christ, this guy's a good writer. That's so beautiful. Mary Oliver captures this possibility in her exquisite piece, morning poem every morning 
the world is created. Under the orange sticks of the sun, the heaped ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches, and the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands. Of summer lilies, if it is, in, if it is your nature, you will swim away along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. Oh, poem's still happening. I had to turn the page. Thought the poem was done. It's not done. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still somewhere deep within you a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning, whether or not you have ever dared to pray. Fully feeling people are also rewarded with increasing richness in their relationships, both with themselves and with others. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Love manifests as a palpable warmth and excitement when it is grounded in the heart and body by feeling. Emotional love is so much more profound than the lightweight intellectual experiences of thought-bound people for whom love is often only an ideal, a dream, or a hungry expectation. Adult children benefit greatly from challenging and overthrowing false, destructive beliefs and forgiveness about forgiveness, blame, and emotionality. Life is inordinately more painful than necessary when we hate, shame, and abandon ourselves for not feeling good. I gotta get that tattooed on my goddamn forehead. If we remain trapped in our family's legacy of disdaining all but the most exalted emotions, we may never feel authentically forgiving towards ourselves or anyone else. <sighs> that's a big one, y'all. So that was, that's chapter one of the Dow Fully Feeling. And I hope you like it. That was most of the chapter. I read most of it. Because honestly, this guy's words, he's such a beautiful writer. And um, and I hope they resonate with you. I, I wanted to, to try something. A little call to action, if you will. Um, because I think I, I've done this before. I asked you to email me, you know, a couple sentences, uh, which is hard to summarize your childhood pain in like one or two sentences. But email me about, uh, you know, something you went through. I want to put together a audio reel of childhood shit. If you feel comfortable, you'll be anonymous, but I'm not going to use a voice disguise. So if your voice is distinct or you'd rather people not know your voice, that's then don't send me one. That's totally okay. But um, ideally, it's, you know, 30 seconds of like a summary which I know is hard to do. So if you can't do 30 seconds, it's not, it's fine. Um, of just something that, you know, one of the things this book is doing is it's making me realize all of these moments of me being a kid where the shit that happened was really fucked up. And I just didn't even consider that my parents could be bad. And one of the things that I was thinking about lately when, when I was reading this book is that it was like a thought that I had. It was like a childhood thought. It was like my inner child kind of came through. It was like, this is a thought that I, that I felt when I was a kid. And that thought was, I can't tell if mommy and daddy are good or bad. Ugh. 
so sad. <laughs> it is. It's a sad thought. I, mean, I may I feel sad when I think about it. But I was so I couldn't tell if they were good or bad because there were so many things that happened that felt so mean. I'm like, well, why would anybody be mean? You know. Um, and that does. And I and I feel very comfortable saying that, which is a huge improvement because. I would not ever dare say anything negative about either of my parents because I thought that that diminished all of the beautiful things that they've done for me, which was a lot of beautiful, wonderful things. And I'm realizing now as an adult that that does not at all diminish any of those good times and those good memories. So it's nice to be able to just even say it on a podcast recording and not feel as though, you know, I have not feel guilt right after I say it. But, you know, one of the things that I I was getting spanked once, um, I don't remember what I did. I know I was really little. I was like maybe five or six. And I remember being confused as to like, why is my mom hitting me? Like, I don't get it. And then my dad came home. And one of the things my mom said was, show your dad what I did to you. And that that like... <sighs> That moment crushed me. And so that's basically what I'm looking for with these audio clips. If you have a smartphone, (laughs) let's share our pain. But no, really, let's share our pain. Because a lot of times for me, hearing other people's stories helps me recognize things of my own story. Or, you know, it's just just helpful because dealing with your own pain and being okay with it and being sad about it is so fucking healthy. Because like... Like Pete Walker said earlier, if you if you're an artist and you only have the bright pastel colors on your palette, your paintings are going to be shit. Okay? We need the darker parts of ourselves. The darker feelings, the darker emotions we have, they're not who we are, but they are 100% a part of who we are and they're a really beautiful part of who we are. They're not an ugly part at all and they're not it's it's safe to it's safe to go there. Um so that's that's what I was going to ask if there if you know if you can create a voice memo of if you can keep it around 30 seconds that'd be like super sick of uh of a moment like the one I described about the spanking thing. Um maybe something that came that dawned on you while you were listening to me read this chapter. If you go, "Oh, wait a second. Obviously, if you're not okay talking about it, please don't. But if you are okay to share, I think one of the things that's unique And I'm very proud of this. I'm extremely proud of this. Uh, The audience that Corinne and I have have earned over the last seven years with Guys We Fucked, uh, it's unlike any audience that any comedian has ever had. And I'm so fucking proud of that. One of the things that is so different about you guys is your willingness to share. Now, whether you came to the table wanting to share or whether you were inspired to share because we shared, either way. Corinne and I could go on stage in Boston in front of 1,100 people, not give you any warning, and say, hey, who wants to come up and talk about some shit? And then a girl will come up and talk about being raped. And we all make space for her, and it's okay, you know? Because you can't just have comedy in life. Comedy, in fact, is timing plus tragedy, okay? So without tragedy, I would be a boring piece of shit. Do you know what I'm saying? So if you have a little clip of something maybe you realized or, or a moment that was darker for you as you were a kid and you want to share it with me, um, make a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at uh, the voices in our heads podcast at gmail.com. 
and you can do subject line childhood shit <laughs> or clip. I, I'll, I'll read, I'll listen to them all. So it's funny, you know, childhood shit. That's just a good subject line to put because I'll be like, oh, that's funny. <sighs> How you doing? You okay? I'm okay. Thanks for asking. <laughs> this is only chapter one, motherfuckers. Buckle up. This book is really fucking intense. But 2021 baby it's the year of self-actualization and digging inside yourself and getting to know yourself all the parts of yourself not just the parts you put on fucking instagram not just the parts you want to show to your friends or your family or the rest of the world and not just the parts that you deal with when you're at home alone we're gonna dig deeper we're gonna excavate okay we're gonna dig up those dinosaur bones and we're gonna give them to the met and they're gonna build a statue and we're gonna go isn't that pretty or whatever. I'm trying to make a metaphor. You guys understand. Hey, if you want to listen to the Feel Your Feelings January playlist, I always find it ho- um, helpful when I am feeling feelings and I'm kind of in the mood to cry. These songs are like a nice little tunnel for me to feel. And it's really nice. So if you if you enjoy sad songs or songs that make you feel, I'll put the link for that uh, playlist in, my, in the uh, description of this podcast episode. I'm just going to burp on microphone. I don't care. And also... Um, if you have it in you, can you rate and review me on iTunes? <laughs> can you do it, please? I'll ask you like every other day. <laughs> I love you guys. Congrats on still being here. <laughs> we The only way out is through, baby cakes. We got this, motherfuckers. All right, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. I'm in I'm